0: and understanding how keto is so effective in proving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, welcome back to the next episode of the Keto Naturopath. I'm Dr. Carl Goldkamp. Well, first things first, um, I guess we've accomplished something. We've now done over 200 episodes of this particular podcast. It's it's kind of a a minor podcast in the scheme of things, for sure, uh, but that's a lot of talking for what I consider as a generally quiet guy, me. Um, and hopefully, it's been interesting to those who interesting to those who have been listening along the way. So today there is a topic, and it's not just about that. It is about gout, gout and pseudo gout, and what you've never heard about it before. I'm going to cover the basics, but I'm going to lead up to something that's always been in the back of my mind since I've been a liver lover and therefore were kind of borderline with uh, hypervitaminosis A, meaning too much vitamin A in serum, which is actually hard to measure unless you think to measure something like that. It's not nothing that your doctor's office can really get you. Uh, There's other more expensive tests, so it can be measured, but it's nothing that is you know, on your regular blood work at all. And uh, we'll go into some of that. Okay. So let me back up and I'm going to talk about uric acid as well. There's a lot of um, noise around uric acid. Dr. Perlmutter did a book called Acid Drop. And um, my candid response to all that is that uh, he's certainly trying to uh, do a lot of podcasts and so on to get enough attention for people to buy his book and and that's good. It does tie into diabetes and everything else. And we'll get into that. But um, let me give you sort of the structure of uric acid as told by that particular focus. And you'll hear more and more about it. Oh, uric acid. Did you get your uric acid tested? And it's it actually, it's a very common test. Um, it, that is part of your kind of regular, ordinary, everyday panel. Your UA, uric acid, and basically three things. I'm going to give, give you a fourth, but three three things lead into it, and it's, it's pretty academic. Anybody who's been through the first thirty seconds of medical school, a little longer than that, you'll find that it's purines, which are basically the breakdown of animal products. And those are the things that are, uh, in essence, um, similar to nucleic acids, but we'll just call them purines, and. Um, the breakdown of RNA and and so on. So as as meat gets digested, it gets broken down, of course. And so what happens with meat and all protein, and some are a little higher than others. So it's more, they say, oh, shellfish and uh, organ meats. So they're kind of the most culpable. Organ meats and shellfish and, and seafood in general. Um, but I would say the center of all that would be organ meats. I'll come back to organ meats. So purines was the thing I wanted you to get. Also, if you're fairly high, I mean, if you have regular alcohol on a regular basis, now we're adding a stack, if you will. So the first part was purines because you are eating organ meats, meat in general, but organ meats certainly are much higher in purines and seafood and shellfish in particular. So that's going to be your basics. Now you happen to be a, a, you like wine every night. Okay. Now you have alcohol on a regular basis. I'm not saying a lot even if it's just one glass, you're having purines on a regular basis and you're having alcohol on a regular basis. And the third thing is fructose. And fructose obviously comes from fruit, but actually it's the breakdown of sugar. So sugar is sucrose and sucrose is glucose and fructose. So as that gets broken down and it happens, uh, I believe it happens in your stomach. I'm not quite sure about that. Or the top of your small intestine, you get a bunch of fructose naturally. So you get your sugar that you have at your table we haven't used sugar for like ooh fifteen years, maybe. Um, it's I think it comes from sugar beets or it comes from sugar cane. Those are really the only two sources. And now there's a lot of other "quote unquote" natural sugar substitutes. But or if you're a fruit eater, I mean, somebody it's obviously has it's the high, high amount of fruit in fructose um, in fruit. Yeah, fructose in fruit. So those are the three components: fructose. Not glucose, fructose, purines, and alcohol. Those three are the makings for elevated uric acid, an elevated uh, uric acid test, and more than likely you would get gout. And you can say there's uh, certain family histories are more sensitive than others, having to do with the genomic work. But I'm not going to go into gen- genome today, that there's always that for every particular situation. All right, so those three things. So, what is the fourth thing that you've never heard? I'm sure you've never heard of this coming up. The fourth thing that's associated with gout and also pseudo gout, and I'll get into that. I mentioned it uh, briefly in passing before, is vitamin A. Not beta carotene, but vitamin A. So, this is now, and you go, where do you get vitamin A? Back to the organ meats. Organ meats are in the united states which is where i'm from right now is primarily liver you know most people don't have other organ meats maybe kidney but i i've never met anybody who, you know even of all the patients i've had i've never met one person who has kidney but every so often now that we do video on youtube you get this comment from somebody oh yeah that and kidneys so yeah there was kidney pies it was in all of our past you can go back to your grandparents and great-grandparents. And I'm sure that they they knew of liver and kidney and brain and chitlins maybe, that's small intestine. What else they had? They probably had spleen and they probably had tripe for their stomach and they might have even had lungs. All these things were pretty common uh, 50 years ago you saw them in the grocery store. Okay. So now you know there's actually four things, vitamin A. So why would, so you get two of these things, come from organ meats, right? Organ meats are all those purines. It's purine rich food. So now for most part, we're talking liver, right? So in lieu of all the other organ meats disappearing, those who had organ meats probably now have more liver. I've been kind of um, talking about liver and uh, videos a lot lately because I love liver. I've, we've made liver pate, and I would say for the last two years, if not four years, I was trying to remember how far back my my uh, my uh, addiction for needing to a, needing to have a bowl of liver pate slash kind of a liverwurst in the refrigerator at all times. At least three years. And I have a story to tell you. It's a personal story that made me look into vitamin A as association with gout in particular. Um, and I know since I'm speaking external Temporaneously, in this way, I can kind of retreat a little bit. I'm going to go back to one of the reasons vitamin A is not just, huh, that's added too, is because it shares the enzyme for making uric acid. In other words, uh, retinol is made into retinoic acid and actually other products as well, but it has to go through xanthine oxidase. So that's the enzyme, xanthine oxidase. And um, urea goes into xanthine oxidase to come out with uric acid. And uric acid is made in the body so you can pee it out. You when you think of, and it's, uh, where is uric acid? Generally speaking, you would hear about uric acid that it's a, uh, a protein breakdown product. Uh, nitrogens is what determines proteins. You don't have nitrogen and uh, carbohydrates or fats. They're all in proteins. And so how do you not have too much nitrogen in the body? Well, you have a urea cycle. So it's about taking off the nitrogen and turning it into uh waste. And so the way it's done in in pretty much all, all animals is that there's, there's different forms of urea that are excreted. So uh, birds have theirs fairly high in uric acid, um, uh, fish that obviously live in water, they have a very concentrated urea, but they dump it quickly and their surroundings gets, it gets diluted very quickly and they flush through a lot of water. So it varies, but it's pretty much the same process, the urea cycle, whether it comes out as urea, um, or, uh, uric acid and sometimes they call it the ammonium cycle, the ammonia cycle. Uh, so when you smell, what's the smell of old urine? It smells like amo- pneumonia, right? I'm pneumonia, ammonia. Um, so there's that. So it's about proteins. Specifically, we're talking about gout. Yes, it's about protein. That's why we said all animal fats, and uh, not fats, all animal meats, proteins in general, but organ uh, meats specifically were much higher in proteins. And so it's the, um, the proteins, the purines that are high. Okay. So that's kind of the back background story. Kind of that's now, you now have a general understanding of uric acid, what drives uric acid. So if you're on a high protein diet, and if you've been listening to me and uh protein sparing modified fast, or even in keto, and certainly if you go off into the carnivore aspect of things, that's pretty high protein, so high protein for carnivore. Uh, high protein and protein-sparing modified fast because you've now dropped the fat. You've previously have dropped the carbs for the most part, and you don't do it continuously. You do it for maybe half a week or two thirds of a week. Okay. So with those people on those diets, they have primarily the, car, uh, the primarily the uh, carnivore and the protein-sparing modified fast, they have a higher UA, a higher uric acid lab test, right? Because they're taking in more protein, they have more work to do, and that's how it goes. So to that, and, you know, the idea, the concept of uh, a carnivore diet it's not set in stone. You know, there's not lots of studies on this. You know, they don't pull it from the shelf and say, oh, you're on the carnivore diet. That means you're having X amount of protein per day and you're having these kind of proteins. Nope. It's pretty much everybody makes it up. It just means they're eating all animal products. That's pretty much how most people interpret what the carnivore diet is. And the problem therein is there's a lot of variations how people are doing it. There are within the carnivore group of people that really gravitate to organ meats. You know, they have the head to tail, the whole idea that was quickly in the early ketogenic diet days with the ketovore, what they call it is like, no, we eat head to tail. You know, we eat the whole thing. We are like, you know, the paleo ketovore. It's all kind of amalgamizing, amalgamizing uh, amalgamating into one sort of idea. And that idea was animal food, animal source of food. Well, those who had the proteins, those who said, you know, I'm not going to do all the organ meats. I think I'm just going to hang out with liver. And, uh, liver has been mentioned in so many cultures of being very special. It's very nutrient dense. In fact, it's the most nutrient nutrient dense food you can have in the world. Pick your animal. It's going to be of that animal. It's the most nutrient dense. And it's clearly the most nutrient dense for polar bears. Um, because there have been uh, back in the day, this is kind of how we learned about liver. It was it wasn't until the early 40s did was it discovered that polar bear liver was toxic and why it was toxic. It was too much vitamin A. So it hasn't that information hasn't even been around a hundred years. But anyways, they died and it's and many got very very sick and then you realize, well, what's going on? Well, they are a carnivore liver, right? Like polar bear equals eats seals and anything else it can eat. It certainly doesn't eat much grass up there and the seals eat other animals. And the other eventually is what they get is this whole bioaccumulation or a bioconcentration of vitamin A and other nutrients as well. And that is, I will not say it's stored in the liver, but the vitamin A as a nutrient is stored in the liver for the most part. Not all nutrients are stored in the liver. Vitamin A vitamin A is, and throughout the rest of the body, but most of it is in the liver. So an herbivore liver, a cow, uh, a deer, a buffalo, they're big animals, but they're just herbivores. So yeah, they've concentrated what they've eaten, but they haven't eaten other livers, right? They don't eat anybody else's liver. They eat all the grass that's out there And they concentrate all the goodies there. So they have in their whole body, it's still the most nutrient dense part of them, but it's nowhere near, uh, you couldn't call it toxic and toxic is just about the dose, right? So the difference between, for instance, a calf's liver is, has twice the amount of vitamin A as a beef's liver. I don't know compared to a lamb or deer or sheep or buffalo, but Um, it gives you an idea of herbivores are far less concentrated than carnivores. Interesting to know. So there's no bioaccumulation. It's just what was in that they ate. They ate good stuff. They'll have a good liver. Okay. So where does vitamin A come from? It comes either up from all the things you've eaten from. It also comes from, uh, some of the grass and so on and so forth. So because it shares that same enzyme, you know, it also makes your uric acid go up. Now, it's kind of one of these pieces of information that nobody really ever needed to know because very few people eat that much liver. But in the fad that started with the ketogenic diet and then the ketogenic diet to the carnivore diet, that there were this little subgroup that really took the organ meat and eating head to tail, eating all that awful, that's what they call it, all the non-muscle parts is called awful. Um, They are the ones that didn't do so well. Some might have, but I hear more and more complaints about those people dropping carnivore, and the reason is it wasn't it wasn't explained there was no specific way you know in terms of ancestry i'm sure all the Aboriginal people, all the Native Americans, et cetera et cetera, wherever they were, they knew. What I just told you, the liver is the most nutrient dense part of anything you're ever going to eat and carnivore different. They knew all that, that wasn't a mystery to them. And so they parsed it out as a good thing, but they parsed it out and they had the muscle. So it was something everybody had and they were glad that they have it because it really kept them healthy. But they didn't go too far. So that knowledge was lost. So now we're into, oh, keto, let's do keto. I want to lose weight and so on and so forth. And that all happened in 2015. And so now we're into seven years of this. Uh, It goes on, but that was a primary drive. I want to lose weight. Oh, I'm, I'm going to be a paleo person. I'm going to be a, you know, and it really get healthy and be carnivore. And so there's a lot to be said in a positive way for the carnivore diet. I mean, it's dramatic. People have women who've had trouble with fertility became fertile and could have children and so on and so forth. And it's plenty of documentation now on that, but it's still not a very clear idea. What is carnivore? Is it just lack of eating vegetables? I mean, in Wherever you go for your news, you'll see there's this incessant battle between people who say plants are better and meats are better. And I each do their own. I'm just after the information because I had my reason of improving my situation and for my wife as well. So now you know that, yeah, it's organ meats, but it's not just the purines, it's the vitamin A. And you're going to hear some. And I've, when I started looking into this more and more, I go on YouTube for vitamin A toxicity. Um, personal stories and so on and so forth, you realize a lot of carnivore people who just jumped in and said, this is going to transform me and really didn't have directions to follow. And they were perhaps more bold than common sense would have made them be by having more of the most nutri- nu- nutrient dense part of an animal, which they wouldn't know, you know, they heard head to tail and this is the way it's going to go. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have my collagen because it comes from the hoofs and the, and the and the bone broth and all these good things, and I'm going to be so healthy. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, but there's a lot of information that we just didn't know. You know, no Aboriginal would have eaten that way, no Native American would have eaten that way, no uh, Inuit would have eaten that way, and especially the Inuits were much more aware of wh- what's going on. So that's the beginning. So my story now going forward is that my guess is that I started really, um, once I was very sick, I realized I'm going to look where I didn't look before. I'm going to not call things stupid that I thought were stupid or negligent or uh, unhealthy. I will listen and I will then look you know, it became easier and easier as the internet developed in this side of way of doing things to get into PubMed and Google Scholar and do my own research and really get into it. And if I had to go back to libraries, go back to my textbooks to flesh all this out, did some of this make sense? So, um, when we moved to North Carolina about uh, three years ago now that, uh, we rented a house for two years. It was a, uh, house, that was a hundred and Let's see, 1910. That puts it to 110, 20 years old. And um, I always thought it was a little bit dusty. And if I had any health problems, it was because of that. But um, I got this bad sore throat when I came back from a keto conference down in Florida. And um, I don't get bad sore throats. I hadn't had a bad sore throat in. I don't know, 20, 30 years, maybe college, maybe I, I can't even remember when I had a strep, probably as a kid. So this sore throat just wouldn't go away. It got worse and worse, went into, turned into strep. And so this was in, as a background, it's hard to sort of self analyze yourself dietarily that I was really making sure that we always had liver available. And there was always some liver pate in the refrigerator and, um, and it was calves, we were, we we're cat, I wanted the best of the best. So I went for calves. So calves, as I mentioned, is twice the amount of vitamin A. So if I had three ounces a day of calves' liver, calves' liver is about five to six, that would be five or six thousand, sorry, that would be um, 50 to 60,000 IUs of vitamin A. So, for all my smarts, I just didn't think of looking that up. You know, I mean, I, other than polar bear liver, why would I worry about uh, vitamin A? Well, there's a difference between acute toxicity. You have something right now, and that dose that you had was way too high for it. Well, it doesn't happen with liver, but what's more common, it's more common with children, but it also happens with adults, is what they call chronic toxicity. You're having a high dose, not super, super, super high, but a high dose is probably pretty close to the upper limit or maybe over it. And you're having it day after day after day. And eventually three or four months down there, you become very, very saturated with vitamin A. And the thing about vitamin A, if you're not me, I don't use any cosmetics and so on and so forth. So there's no other sources of vitamin A. I don't have processed food. So, but other people, they'll have the vitamin A that comes through their their cereals, they'll have the vitamin A that comes through their cosmetics, their retinol and whatever else. The Accutane they're putting on their face, and uh, when you think about the vitamin A toxicity, which is your skin peels, your bones become fragile and they break more easily. You you start have a crushing immune, your immune system starts to crash. Um, well, that's what retinol is. You put it on your face so it makes your face peel, so your your face is forced to produce this new skin. So you look younger, but you, what you've done is you've kind of done a skin peel kind of thing, but, uh, on a, uh, nearly hormonal level. Cause uh, vitamin A is, is a kind of a hormone in essence, uh, and in reality. So I only just had this one source. My source was just liver, but it was Gav's liver because I wanted the best, right? I'm going to go full. I'm going to go full. So it had to be you know a number of months, if not a year or so, of me climbing on this gradual chronic toxicity, so where I was, I had no idea, I didn't have that awareness in me to challenge that but what was what's the backstory what's happening to me inside um I would once or twice I had to have a uh um, what do I call it? a skin tumor not not a uh not a beta cell carcinoma, not a uh, actinic, actinic keratosis. It wasn't any skin cancers. Uh, it was this one that was removed from me. And when I go in for my annual visit when I was in Cape Cod, it was like a uh, a non-fomenting, uh, for lack of a better word, pimple. It was just a lump that was getting bigger. So it was taken out, it was tested, and it came back cancerous, and nobody knew even knew what the cancer was. It was called the paracrine, something or other. Like, okay, interesting. So that was sort of the background of it happening. Interesting. So I just wrote it off as, ah, well, I'm in the Cape now. I have my shirt off a lot. And, you know, I go clamming and do all these old outdoor wonderful things. Um, but no, I believe it was the vitamin A that I was rising at a higher and higher and higher level. And so when I got this um uh, sore throat that went to a strep throat that I hadn't had for probably 40 or 50 years, whenever it was probably because my immune system was getting suppressed again. I was suppressing my immune system without thinking that I was, you know, I think I was doing good things. So that went on and I had, uh, well, the thing that finally happened is that, so I went in and uh, actually had to go do a walk in and go, wow, you got strep throat. So here are your antibiotics. And, um, let us know know, how things go or, or don't, we just come to town. So I didn't really have a doctor. Uh, so I, started taking the antibiotics within three days. I couldn't walk. You know, my uh, it was just like it was a gout attack at my uh, right foot. It wasn't my bunion. It was on the other side. But it was so painful, I couldn't support any way at all. Just the slightest thing. So we, we go back to walk in. And what was written off then, that it was what they call, and strep is somewhat famous. It's classic for anybody who's been through medical school to what they call a, uh, hypersensitivity reaction number type three. What does that mean? Is that, so you have strap, it's a bacterial infection. Your body fights it by making antibodies. These antibodies make complexes and your complexes tend to settle out. And I'm giving you kind of the Reader's Digest version of type three hypersensitivity reaction, tend to settle out in various joints, namely, usually your knees. It's your knees and then your ankles and maybe your elbows, but it could be anywhere. So it was written off like, oh, that's what he has. You know, he has a, he has one of the, his immune reaction because he's strep. but We see that. Okay. And, but it came in, of course, they, they x-rayed my foot to make sure it wasn't broken. They looked at my uric acid, which wasn't exceedingly high by normal standards. And they said, you know, let's, let's just keep on, keep on. And so, um, I then had to come back again and they, and they gave me, uh, now I had a, a doctor, so I went to see the doctor a couple of days later. You know, I'm in a wheelchair now, if you can imagine. And he gave me indomethacin and said, Well, it's not gout because your your uric acid isn't high enough, so we'll call it pseudo gout. And I go, Is that a real thing? I didn't know enough about pseudo gout. I go, so it's not that, it's the pseudo thing. So it's like you don't have a cold, you have a pseudo cold. You don't have- <laughs> so I joked in that way, but there is a thing called pseudo-gout, and it is for uh, what they call gouty arthritis, that you don't have the high enough uric acid levels, uh, but they'd have to be really high. So they're looking for a black and white analysis. However, I now realize that it was, for me, it was probably was a pretty high uric acid. You know, I was not aware of my own uric acid levels over time, that it was the vitamin A chronic toxicity that was building up over that time. So it's like, wow, that is a big deal. That's like an end run around how to get gout without calling it gout. So uh, that obviously helped me, but I still did not know at that point that it was the vitamin A that was driving this whole thing until it then happened once or twice again. I go, I really have to look into, you know, I have no family history, no genomic associations with gout or uh, pseudo gout, and I did a lot of search on this and. I said, you know, I just wonder about vitamin A, and sure enough, there are a number of articles of uh, vitamin A. It's been a sort of proposed uh, hypothesis, if you will, um, of of a vitamin of vitamin A. And so, um, I was going to read that some of it for a second, just to show to show you that's a real thing. So I'm not just making this up. I'll be very short on this because I don't want to get too arcane here and tied up into medical technical jargon. But the title is called Association Between Concentrations of Uric Acid and Concentrations of Vitamin A Compared to Beta Carotene, which is a, a precursor to uh, vitamin A. And so this is 2013. And this was saying our objective was to examine cross uh, sectional associations between vitamin A and uric acid. And they say, sure enough, what we find is concentrations of uric acid were significantly and positively, meaning they go up together associated with concentrations of vitamin A. Okay. then, and then you go, well, you know, this is not a new idea. It says gout was a common complication of hyperuricemia, elevated uric acid, an end product of the metabolism of purines. And in 1992, this guy, um, said, you know, I think vitamin A might have something to do with it. And so it uses the same enzyme that converts. So xanthine oxidase, which converts xanthines to uric acid, Hmm. retinol to uh, retin, retinoic acid. So it's a continual driver of the same enzyme. And sometimes, um, it blocks by saying, sorry, we're using this right now, (laughs) you know? So the uric acid, um, tends not to be reduced. So, uh, anyways, there was that. So that's been around for a while. It's an idea that was really came out in the, um, mid eighties. It really wasn't followed through. We have hyper vitamin A toxicity and gout paper in 90 and 84. And then, in 92. I just told you about that. And this paper came out in 2013. And now the association is pretty uh, is pretty well established. And it's with vitamin A, not beta carotene. And, and in fact, it's the opposite with beta carotene. So that's a good thing. Um, so that's what I want to present to you. So when we talk about gout, we go, oh, what is purines? We hear a lot about coffee. And let me tell you the coffee story, because I, I want to alert you to uh, what not to read. So I'm reading from, you go online and you do a Google search. And so I get uh WebMD comes up and it goes, coffee lowers gout risk. This is 2007. And it generally has maybe a reference. Usually it doesn't reference the um, study, but it says, well, more coffee men drink, the lower risk of gout. Pretty catchy, right? At least four cups a day lowers gout by 40%. All right. So now WebMD in three years later, it says caffeine may trigger gut attacks. So the reason I'm saying this is that WebMD is really a publicity prostitute for medical information. It's just trying to get your eyeballs. And if it can say that there's enough to spin this little opposite, you know, so here's what this says. The extra jolt or two of ca- caffeine, caffeine now, as opposed to cr- this says caffeine. So let me stand corrected, by the way. One was about coffee lowering risk, and the other is about caffeine may trigger. So it says caffeine, and caffeine, by the way, is a purine, but you didn't know that, may trigger a gout attack in people with painful and often uh, disabling arthritic conditions. And it says, for example, drinking four servings of caffeinated beverages, now we're not talking coffee, was associated with an 80% increase of gout attacks compared with having no caffeine drinks. So the difference between these two, and they both have caffeine, of course, was that in coffee, and there's even another article on this and now in 20, 2021, that's pretty recent, saying, is coffee good for gout? You know, I would question that. And it's also from, oh, it's actually from Net. And it talks about it's some of the other aspects So the polyphenols in the coffee could well um, help control gout, which is mostly for men, by the way. So that's interesting. So you have to be careful about what you read, especially from uh, web MDs. But coffee is a purine. Caffeine is a purine. Coffee has other things that may help. Um, so again, to say it's purines, it's, which are organ meats primarily, meat in general, uh, seafood in general. It is fructose. So having a lot of sugar, having a lot of fruits and what else I say purines, uh, coffee. And so caffeine would be a negative for the most part. This is now what I believe and what I've read as opposed to coffee. And then the fourth one would be now vitamin A. Nearly nobody has to worry about vitamin A if less you're like somebody like me that was determined to change their health and do things they hadn't done before. So liver is very good, but you do have to be careful with it. The calf, the calf's liver versus the beef's liver, and that's about as much liver. Those are the highest you'll have. But be careful about that, that you have this. So if you were a carnivore and you've had a lousy time being a carnivore and you really wanted to be an authentic carnivore by doing head to tail this could be a problem for you. So, you need to look at that and then really back it down. The biggest worry about liver, meaning beef and calves' liver in general, is about giving it to kids because before three years old, they don't have a completely developed digestive tract. And it's very easy to give them too much from overdevoted parents that say liver is good for you. So, you know, a little is good, a lot is not better. A lot is dangerous. I'll end on that. Hope you learned something. Take care. Actually, I did want to add one other note in talking about gout. The obvious connection between gout and the ketogenic diet is as you're dropping your carbs, and maybe you're dropping your fat or not, but you're dropping your carbs and you're getting into ketosis, your body is starting to make ketones. And you're starting to pee out ketones. And so you get your litmus paper and you can see it's turning purple and you're peeing out uh, ketones. The reason that that purple color stops in about a month's time is that your body has learned to keep the ketones and let the uric acid pass out. But while that first month of you getting into ketosis, and this is really important, if you have a history of gout that you really should... You know, stay on your medications for this transition month, and that while you are, you know, peeing out the ketones because your body hasn't seen these ketones since you're in utero, that it takes a month for it to understand. It basically takes a month for your kidneys to understand. No, it's the, let the uric acid go out, let and keep the ketones. But for that month, it actually starts to keep the ketones. Sorry, keep the uric acid. And so your uric acid levels will rise for everybody. They do rise for everybody. And if you have the history of gout, that's going to be very painful for you. So, But then it will actually recede down to lower levels than you had before. So long term, it's a great idea. Short term, it's a problem. And so this is the issue. And sometimes when we talk about uh, caffeine specifically, not so much coffee, is that We know that coffee can be very helpful towards helping you get into ketosis if you are low carbs. It's one of those little extra little, I wouldn't call it a cheat, but it's efficient. It's, you know, it speeds you up. It tends to use, it accelerates fat metabolism. And um, so it's all good. So that could be one of the additive things is that because it's helping you get into ketosis, if you have other contextual changes you've made to get yourself into ketosis, it will accelerate that. And consequently, it will drive up the uric acid uh, if this is your first time transitioning. So that could be one of the reasons besides caffeine using xanthine oxidase as does uh, uric acid. So um, I thought that would be something you really should know. So if you have a history, just go on the medications for a month while you make the transition. But also in the bigger picture in terms of gout, it's not just all about, uh, it's the factors that go into making a high uric acid level. And uh, the reason that uric acid is be- catching this new sort of go-round of, hey, let's look at uric acid. They even now have uric acid meters. You know, Use uric acid meter instead of a, glucometer is because it's really a correlate. In other words, it's, it's equally as if you have elevated blood sugar levels, you will have because you uh, have now probably very high fructose levels in the, general, in, in the source of your diets, right? through processed foods, through all the other things. You have those reasons to have a high uric acid level. So if you're focusing on dropping your uric acid level to like under five and a half, which is really where you should be, then you're doing the things that are moving you in the right direction anyway, whether you're diabetic, pre-diabetic, dysglycemic. Um, And so it's kind of redundant sort of measurement, but some people like that. Here's one more thing I can follow. You can also, you know, get your ketometer and measure your growth of ketones as they rise and then they fall as your body gets to use them. So I would say that it's up to you to use all these things if you want to. I don't think uric acid is one thing worth chasing if you're already doing glucometer and ketometers, but you know, you do what you want, And but that's why it's in this conversation of why is uric acid important? What does it have to do with ketosis? Um, what does it have to do with dropping weight? What does it have to do with correcting diabetes? It's pretty much the same thing we've been talking about before. Okay, so now we're at the end. Hi, this is Dr. Gold again for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough on many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So, what you need to do is to send me your questions at, drgoldcamp at, so that's at Dr. Goldcamp at ketonatropath.com. So that's D R G O L D K A M P at K E T O N A T U R O P A T H. dot com. Dr. Goldcamp at ketonatropath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonatropath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.